there are 4.1 claims filed for every 100,000 emergency department visits. MTALA is like getting a speeding ticket. Where do the ER physicians assume risk related to MTALA? This makes us the largest liars club in the United States. The smoking cougar is a dangerous animal. Come on, this is a joke, right? Hello, welcome. Rick Bucata, Greg Henry, and our guest this month, Dr. Mike Ritter from, you're down in San Diego away, Mike? South Orange County at South Mission Orange Hospital. County. Okay, Mission Hospital. Yeah, wait a second, Rick. Before we get going, we're not going to leave Mike without telling people that he's been elected, what is this, czar of the universe, or at least physician of the county or something like that? Mike, tell us about this. Yeah, I just found out that the Orange County Medical Association has elected me the Physician of the Year for 2011. Well, That's that is- amazing. Congratulations. Ricky, a round of applause here. Okay. Uh, that's terrific. And by the way, we're not worthy, sir. We're not worthy to have you on our program. But that hasn't stopped us before. <laughs> we've had a lot of great people on this program who we've been quite willing to ignore and make fun of. So as long as you're willing to stay, we'll do this. We connected to Mike because he generously sent us his notes from the ashram meeting that he attended in Tampa this year. The ashram people are the American Society for Healthcare Risk Management, and he has been involved with helping the St. Joseph system, which is, I think, 14 hospitals, stay out of trouble, and has been one of their physician advocates. And so he's been doing this for a while. He's offered to spill the beans so we didn't have to go to that thing and give us some of the pearls, particularly related to emergency medicine. I did get a little of Mike's background here, other than this wonderful award and recognition that he's gotten. He was a resident at UC Irvine. He was on the board of directors of California ASEP in the Mesozoic period when I was on the board of California ASEP. He's the assistant director at Mission which is this terrific little hospital. Well, it's not all that little, but it's in this very affluent area of Orange County. Have you ever seen a Medicaid patient down there, Mike? I think we've had one or two. Okay, okay. Yeah, he was passing through, though. He was on his way to Los Angeles. That's right. uh, Don't worry about it. One of the things I think is interesting about his group is that they are very into the hospital in that... And it's a hard time believing this, but I'm sure it's true. Five of their members are on the medical executive committee as a result of their being on various committees for the hospital. So they could basically take over that hospital if they wanted to with five votes right there. And Mike's been the chief of staff, which is really a kind of a nice deal for the emergency physicians because oftentimes they're kind of viewed by the rest of the medical staff as in the pocket of administration. And so they tend not to be at the top of the list for being selected. But more and more doctors who do emergency medicine are being chosen as chiefs of staff. He's on a couple of committees that we have a particular interest in, pharmacy and therapeutics, credentials, and most importantly, interdisciplinary practice, where we've been talking about PAs and NPs now for a matter of months. And last month was an issue particularly focused on liability associated with working with these mid-level folks. So that's about the part of Mike's background that is free for public disclosure. We should not let this go without another comment, Rick, and that is, speaking of the Mesozoic era, when Carl Mangold, who is no longer with us, the dear departed, strode the land, he said something which I think Mike has obviously picked up on, and that is, if you're not a part of the administration and a part of the executive committee, your contract is in jeopardy. And I think that Carl, he was right then and he's right today. If you're not a part of the activities of the hospital, things will be done to you. 
instead of you doing things within the organization. And I think Mike and his people have done a great job in that regard. And we look at it as we're a big tree and we've got deep roots that grow in every direction. It's going to be really hard to pull that tree out of the ground. Not only is it important to make sure that the vectors pointed in the right direction for the emergency department, but we interface with all parts of the hospital and to be able to control and not let other people tell us how to practice emergency medicine can only be done if you're involved at the executive level. Exactly. The tree analogy is kind. I tended to use the analogy of the barbs of the hooks would be very painful to extract once they've been sunk in deeply into the hospital. But then again, you're more diplomatic, I'm sure. Now that we're done with bad analogies, Mike, tell us what stoked your interest in risk management and hospital safety. How did you get here? And why are you into this? There was a couple things that happened, and they sort of all happened simultaneously. When I became chief of staff of the hospital, we put together several risk reduction committees, and there weren't a lot of people that were interested, and so I had to sort of corral the medical staff to get involved in these. And one of our board members on the board of trustees, which I was also on as the chief of staff, is the head of risk management at San Onofre Nuclear Power Plant. So he invited us down to take a tour of the plant. And so we got a private guided tour of the plant. Now, it wasn't like Homer Simpson where we got to go in the control room and start pushing levers. But <laughs> we got to see how they approach safety. And one of the things that struck me that's the exact opposite of medicine is that there's a strong mindset that if you see something that doesn't look right, you speak up immediately. So if you see somebody working on something and their tools are a mess or something doesn't look right to you and it doesn't pass the sniff test, you are encouraged and you actually get into trouble if you don't speak up. Now, granted, they have a vested interest because if something goes haywire, it's going to kill everybody, not just the person working on it. As a result of seeing that and going down and looking at the plant, it really made me think, in medicine, we don't do that. You've got some gruff surgeon in the operating room and the nurse sees that something's not right, but they would never dare speak up because they would get yelled at and some instrument would get thrown at them. And so looking at that whole approach that they took with their safety at the nuclear power plant, in addition to implementing our own safety protocols, I really struck an interest in this area. Well, I'll tell you, the days of me, doctor, you banana poo-poo have really gone by the board. I think that throwing instruments and yelling at nurses went out with red meat. And today, that kind of behavior, I don't think, at least at the hospitals I've been recently associated with, that kind of behavior would not be allowed anymore. We all saw it early on, but I think that's leaving quickly in medicine. Well, the threshold is a lot lower than that now. If you're discourteous to the staff, you are in any way intimidating. The CEO at our hospital made it very clear to the medical staff that if you pull any of those stunts, that he would make your life pretty miserable because they have an obligation to create a amical work environment. And to the extent that that is not maintained because of the medical staff or members of the medical staff, they have an obligation to fix the problem. So it's much, much more subtle now and much more pervasive. There's another side to that, and that is a doctor needs to be polite about it, but he needs to be directive occasionally. I've seen this go the other way, Rick, where action's been brought because a nurse was offended. She was told to do something, and I think that that's not right either. There's a balance here between being directive and being a poo-poo, and we need to kind of keep that in mind that a little direction from the physician is still what you're paid for. It's called writing orders. But I still think that we have 
the weakness that people are afraid to speak up to certain physicians that are more troublemakers or more boisterous than others. And so when you go back and look at anything and deconstruct a problem that's happened and you ask everybody, did you know something was going wrong? You know, what did you think? And it's amazing how many times somebody will say, you know, something didn't seem right, but I didn't want to say anything. And we have to change that mindset in medicine. Well, one of the problems with the way we practice, Mike, I think, is we've always done it sort of off the hip. It's been an anathema to speak about cookbook medicine and checklists. The truth of the matter is I've had some wonderful meals that were made right out of the cookbook that tended to work pretty well. And I think there's a lot of people now in medicine realizing that this whole concept of the checklist is not a bad thing. You know, the airline industries learned about this years ago and realized that when you have some process that you have to do that has 31 steps involved, that it's easy to forget one of those. And even though you may do it every day and take off a plane every day, you may forget to put the flaps down or set the engine to the right RPMs, etc. And in medicine, we have the same thing. We do these extremely complex things and checklists and protocols are good. I got a copy of the Boeing 727 checklist. And it had little things on it, like checking the gas. Well, you know, I think that's a good idea before you take the plane off. And now what they have, according to my pilot friends, is a computer interlock. That if you haven't gone through the computer interlock and both the officers haven't signed on, the plane won't take off. It won't continue until you've gone through the interlock. Although there have been people who have said this analogy between the airline industry and medicine really can break down because the fact of the matter is is that we're talking about an airplane that is a mechanical something. It's, it's a device, right, and, a mechanical device. And the subtleties between medicine and the airline industry are not perfectly analogous. I think some general points can be made for sure, but it's very difficult to find detailed checklists that apply to all patients. And I think there's that idea that one size does not fit all, and there has been some pushback regarding some of this effort. But take basic things like order sets, for example. You know, we've computerized and gone to computerized order entry, which is another headache in and of itself. But I think the one thing that's been good is it's forced everybody to look at the way we practice. How can we be complete yet cost-effective at the same time? And we've got order sets for many different conditions, probably 50 different order sets that we've developed. And as a result, at three in the morning, when you see a patient with vaginal bleeding, you're not going to forget to order the blood type. You're not going to forget to order the quantitative beta HCG. Mm -hmm. No, it has its place. Obviously, it's a little more complex because each human is a little different. But this goes back to who's the surgeon at Brigham and Women's? He's written a book on this. Dr. Gawandi. Yeah, Gawandi. He's basically said, this is how you do it right. He says, this will make up for a mediocre doctor at any moment in time. Because even somebody mediocre has to look at the list and say, yeah, I probably ought to think about this, 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 and this. You don't have to do it, but you at least have to put it through your brain. And I think sometimes when we get tired, some of the obvious things just don't go through our brains. Yeah, the name of that book is The Checklist Manifesto. How to Get Things Done Right by Atul Gawande, who's a surgeon at Brigham and Women's and a staff writer for the New York Times, and apparently that was a big hit. And it's an easy-to-find book in that there's a huge check mark on the cover of the thing. Yeah, exactly. One other thing I thought I would bring up, because I just saw it on television a couple of nights ago, and it really, really, really makes it clear 
how the nuclear industry, nothing is happening by chance there with regards to safety. And the detail and minutia is extraordinary. There was a program on, and it's very accessible. You can watch it on the Internet. It's called The World's Toughest Fixes. And a couple of nights ago, they had the replacement of a turbine in a nuclear power plant. It's on National Geographic Channel. I would encourage people to see it because it just goes into this extraordinary detail of how safety is the number one thing in a nuclear power plant and the extraordinary measures that they take while this device was being changed out. I mean, if you leave one wrench behind or leave one bolt inside of that turbine, it can trash the whole thing and you can lead to a catastrophic accident. There's no question that there are businesses just as dangerous and complex as medicine. I want to get back to some of the things you heard at the ASHRAM meeting. Let's just kind of go through it. Tell us about some of the updates that you went to, some of the lectures. What's happening in the risk management community at this point in time? What about these EMTALA updates? So I attended a lecture, and the attorney who presented it had defended 35 hospitals in the previous year for alleged EMTALA violations where the feds were actually involved. And he had some practical recommendations. The first issue that he talked about is the liability that happens when third parties are injured as a result of a possible EMTALA violation. So an example would be you have a psych patient that gets cleared by the psychiatrist and a couple days later this guy goes out and murders his neighbor. The neighbor's estate brings a suit in federal court claiming that the emergency condition, the depression, was not stabilized. And the Sixth Circuit Court ruled that anyone who suffers harm as a result of an EMTALA violation may sue the hospital. Now, it's interesting that only the hospital is liable. Physicians can be sued for medical malpractice, but they cannot be sued civilly under the EMTALA Acts. However, the family can sue the hospital, and because this is not a medical malpractice action... Liability caps do not apply. So in California, we have micro, but other states have liability caps as well for pain and suffering. You know, it should be pointed out that EMTALA is like getting a speeding ticket. They don't give you an EMTALA violation because of the harm you caused. It's the potential from harm from that action. The actual loss, the actual harm, in fact, EMTALA law states right in it, this does not exempt you from other state liabilities. The federal law does not preclude someone from coming back after you in some other way. So they can still sue you. They can still bring a standard malpractice action and just reference the EMTALA violation as a part of it. Right. And if you've actually been cited and it's a matter of public record, it's very difficult to defend those cases because you've got an independent person that is not a paid expert witness on either side who has said, look, something went haywire and you've been cited for that. What about this business regarding triage delays? So there have been several hospitals that have been cited from TALA violations for triage delays. The first case that was presented was a two-hour delay in a medical screening exam or triage. That was ruled by the federal courts to be an EMTALA violation. And then one other case that was mentioned was Scruggs versus Danville, where a patient that was in diabetic ketoacidosis had an 11-hour wait in the waiting room and... They said a long delay in treatment is also an EMTALA violation. Well, we've seen some nasty cases where things have happened in a waiting room that were videoed and got onto the Internet and people have died. So those are now not just malpractice cases against the hospital. These are federal EMTALA cases as well? That's correct. And so once the feds step in and they do their action, then if there is a med mal claim that's brought in the state courts, the feds have, for the most part, said that medical malpractice 
relates to these EMTALA cases needs to be adjudicated in the state courts, not at the federal level. But if you've been cited, and we'll talk about this a little bit later on with these never 27 events where patients get bed sores or other complications in the hospital, when you're cited by a state or federal agency, it's very difficult to defend those cases. Yeah, I would think so. They've already done the work for the malpractice suit. Correct. It should be pointed out, though, that these are triage delays are an EMTALA violation. But if you were going to say that every patient had to be worked up within two hours of arriving, I mean, you'd have to close USC tomorrow, wouldn't you, Rick? I wouldn't name names, sir. (laughs) Yeah, but in all fairness, in all fairness, there are going to be hospitals in this country where you're going to have to be in the waiting room. If we were to say that everybody who was in the waiting room for two hours was an EMTALA violation, you'd have to shut down half the major hospitals in this country because it isn't going to happen. That's interesting because most of those people in the waiting room have not had a medical screening exam. They have had a triage exam by the nurses. It's not likely that those exams have been considered to be medical screening exams by the executive medical committee and the rules there that make an exam by a nurse, a medical screening exam. So I think there is jeopardy in having people wait in the waiting room for a long time because they may be reasonably alleged that they never got a medical screening exam. Yeah, let's get real here. They haven't had a medical screening exam, but they have had a triage exam of some kind. And if we're now going to imply on this program that two hours in the waiting room is sort of race ipse, a violation of standard care, I think we're in a lot of trouble. Well, let's ask our guest what he thinks. You know, unfortunately, a lot of these cases have to do with what the ultimate outcome was for the patient. If people wait a couple hours to be seen and they don't drop dead in the waiting room, I don't think there's going to be any issues with this. But if you do have a patient that is having chest pain and they never get an EKG and they sit in the waiting room for two or three hours and then have a cardiac arrest and die, not only are you going to have a med mal action against the hospital, but potentially the feds could get involved and say, look, they didn't receive the proper care and treatment and hit you with a, try and hit you with a violation. Yeah, what you're saying is we should all go back to school and become something else. Uh, I know this has been asked and talked about on this program before, but did they mention anything about the hazards of private vehicle transfers from the emergency department? So two of the cases that were brought up about that related to private vehicle transfers, one of them was a kid that had a broken arm, needed to be reduced. They ended up sent into a children's hospital, and on the way there... It was like a 45-minute drive. The parents said, Johnny's in pain. Let's stop somewhere else to get some pain medicine. They stop in another different emergency department on the way, and the hospital was cited for transferring a patient as an EMTALA violation because they didn't go to the right facility. This bothers me tremendously because we do this, or certainly involved in a hospital that sent people to the major medical centers 20, 25 minutes away, and if we'd had to wait for the ambulance, so let's say the husband comes in, his wife is having a retinal detachment. He drives her to the university from my location. Isn't that common sense if you had to wait longer for an ambulance and there's a cost involved in this and the safety issue in that case is almost zero, isn't it? Yeah, these are not medical issues, but unfortunately, under the EMTALA laws, when the federal courts interpret these, they look at a little checklist and say, did you have an accepting hospital? And if they didn't go to the right hospital and they show up at the wrong place, you could potentially get cited. Yeah, I think we've gone crazy. 
It's uh, gone but, crazy, and it doesn't make any sense. A lot of people is fine to transfer them by car. There's no reason that that patient needs to be in an ambulance and get charged for wearing oxygen when they have a retinal detachment. But this is the only country in the world where we honestly believe that everybody coming in has to have two large bore IVs and oxygen, no matter what the chief complaint is. I think the distillate of this is that you are assuming some potential risk when you send somebody by car, but there should not be, I don't think, a matter of policy that every soul, no matter what, goes by ambulance, because it is kind of nutty. I think doctors get paid to make judgments, and I think if they make a judgment where it is perfectly safe medically to send somebody by car, and the other T's have been crossed and I's have been dotted, I think that it's a little unfair actually to call an ambulance call a taxi instead the taxi will get him there exactly by the way were there any other of these cases that came up that we should know about well others are has to do with diversion there was a case in hawaii errington versus wong a few years ago and then recently a case of a ruptured ectopic pregnancy in puerto rico where the ambulance was diverted after they were already en route to one facility and the appeals courts have actually ruled that a patient comes to the emergency department when an ambulance is en route and contact is been made to bring the patient to the hospital, to that particular hospital. So be careful about rerouting patients. Now, in the case in Hawaii, it was a gentleman that had COPD and was having a bad exacerbation, but he happened to get all of his medical care at Tripler Medical Center there, and he was on his way to Queens Hospital, and they said, well, he goes to Tripler. It's a couple of minutes further. Why don't you take him there after they were already en route to the first hospital, and unfortunately, the patient succumbed to his COPD, and so they brought an action against that. The Puerto Rico case was patient had a ruptured ectopic pregnancy, was very sick, and the ambulance had identified that. They called the hospital and said, we're on our way. They made a second call to give an update, and a physician answered the paramedic radio and said, does the patient have a doctor or insurance? And they asked the patient, and they said no, and they said, well, you need to take her to the county hospital. That's a bad one. That's that, a bad that one. you'll go down. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you right now, there's another case that we've mentioned on this program, which had to do with a miscarriage. This was at the East Main Medical Center in Bangor, Maine. Patient was sent home saying it's an inevitable abortion. She did lose the pregnancy the next day. And now they're saying that's an Amtala violation because she wasn't stable. That one's being challenged. And I'm going to follow that one closely. We'll report back to our listenership on that one because I think that has gone beyond the pale. And we send women with inevitable abortions home all the time. If this changes, it will change the behavior in the emergency departments. Right. You know, if you have a pregnancy that is absolutely not viable and it's under the 20 week mark, which most places use as viability or at least to go to labor and delivery. It's really crazy. And where do you draw the line? What if they're four weeks pregnant and they come in with spotting and you send them out and they ultimately don't have their pregnancy survived? You could take it to the extreme. Yeah, well, this is the problem when you have a government practicing medicine. It really doesn't make much sense. There are some reasonable areas here. For example, if you're screening based on the ability to pay, we understand that that is consistent with the reason for passing the act. But these are unintended consequences of the original EMTALA legislation, and it's gone in very strange directions. I thought the other thing that was very interesting that the attorney brought up over and over and over again, and that is using the word stable. EMTALA ends when the patient's deemed to be stable. And so the courts always look for that word. So if you put that in your documentation that the patient is stable and has been stabilized, 
the EMTALA actions are really shut down. The other thing he mentioned is that if a patient requests to be transferred, I always mention that because patient requested transfers, EMTALA no longer applies. We're playing another game now. It goes down with the classic line such as all other systems reviewed and found to be negative. I pointed out one time, this makes us the largest liars club in the United States, but hello, it's part of the game we all play, and it's bizarre, but it seems to be what the government is requiring. It's beyond me why this happens. Well, many charts of patients have at the bottom a series of boxes that are intended to be checked at the end of the visit, and stable is one of those words that are in those boxes, but they're often checked by nurses and rarely checked by physicians. And I think that if they ask, well, who put this down? And it was a nurse. I think that that's not the same thing as the physician determining that this person is stable. So, Mike, would you make a recommendation that it be pretty clear that the physician has determined this status of the patient? I would put that in all the cases that you discharge and transfer. The only exception would be a a truly a higher level of care transfer. So your walk-in gunshot wound that you transfer to a trauma center because you can't handle it, that's different. A lot of the transfers we do, unfortunately, are because of insurance reasons. In those cases, you need to make sure that the patient's stable and document that. What about physician liability in terms of EMTALA? EMTALA is basically about the hospital. Where do the ER physicians assume risk? related to EMTALA? So in terms of physicians, physicians cannot be brought in under civil actions under the federal statutes using EMTALA. Only hospitals can. But because these are not medical malpractice actions, liability caps do not apply. What's happened is in EMTALA investigations, they always ask for a corrective action plan from the hospital. In other words, what are you going to do to make sure that this doesn't happen again? And in some of the extreme cases, the hospital will or their attorneys will say to the investigators, our corrective action plan will be to get rid of Dr. Jones because we really think that he did a bad job and this will never happen again if we get rid of him. And if they make that claim and say that that's going to be their corrective action plan, they're going to follow through on that. And that's the last thing that you want. In my role as looking at these problems from a contractual standpoint, we're all familiar with cross-indemnification clauses for standard malpractice. The hospital has a clause, they always insist on this clause, that says if we lose money based on the actions of the physician or the physician group, we can seek recovery under this contract. I've seen it now where if they lose money because of an Amtala action, they can seek it from the group. So because the physician themselves cannot be included in Amtala because it's basically a hospital act, don't believe for a second that there cannot be a clause written which allows them to come back after you for the money if you're the one that they think caused the problem. Although there are fines that can be levied against physicians in EMTALA, they just don't relate to the emergency physician. They relate to physicians who refuse to come in to take care of patients who are non-transferable, those kinds of things. Correct. All right, Rick, do you want to talk about this MMSEA? I have no idea what that is. Yeah. So I like to call it the MESSI Act. It's the Medicare, Medicaid, and S-CHIP Extension Act of 2007, or MMSEA. And the reason that this is, I think, interesting is that what the feds have said is that if you have a malpractice claim and you settle, 
or have a jury verdict against you. And part of that money is set aside for future medical costs, which almost is always included in these cases, that they, the feds and Medicare or Medicaid are no longer going to pay for that particular condition if it recurs, because you already have been given money to pay for that in the future. So I think the easiest way to understand this is with the case example, you have a woman who has an elective hysterectomy and Postoperatively, she develops a bowel obstruction and is found when she's worked up to have a retained surgical foreign body, a sponge or a 4x4. Second surgery is required. She recovers. They file a lawsuit and the hospital and the physician both settle. Patient ends up getting $600,000. And part of that money is for future medical care. So what the feds say is that if this lady gets another bowel obstruction in the future, she's got to pay for it out of that money that she got in the settlement, that they're no longer going to pay those bills in the future. Well, isn't this a problem with wording of the settlement? I mean, let's say there's a dollar figure, 600,000, but it's for pain and suffering and out of work and all those other sorts of things. Does it have to necessarily refer the settlement papers to future medical claims? It depends on what the terms of the settlement are, and I think that attorneys are probably going to look at this and figure out how to craft the language so that doesn't happen. But remember that when they're trumping up all their damages against cases, you can only get so much for pain and suffering in a lot of states, but future medical care is always a big issue. They have people come in and say, oh, she's going to have another 21 bowel obstructions over the course of her life, and each one's going to cost this amount of money, and so that's where they trump up a lot of the dollar figures for future medical care. Just for those who don't know that right now, because the feds are in such bad financial straits, they're extending these programs where in every state they will be checking on medical malpractice suits which are filed. They just go down, check them every week to see what's happening at the courts. If there's a patient who is covered by Medicare or Medicaid, they put an automatic lien on the case, which means they don't care who wins or loses. Any money that's exchanged... They want to be in on the ground floor of getting a percentage of it. I've been involved in some recent settlement cases where we had to cut the feds in for 15% before we could settle the case. Otherwise, they would not sign off on the basically a lien against the wins and losses simply because they're the ones who actually paid the bill. And as a taxpayer, when I think about this, that's probably right. One of the things that I thought was interesting, Mike, in your explanation was that you don't have to be a Medicare patient for this to apply. This person who with the hysterectomy, who is 40 years old, once they become a Medicare patient, age 65, anything related to that misadventure and the complications that occurred, Medicare is not going to pay for from 65 age forward. It's not just related to patients who are Medicare patients when they get into trouble. Well, that means it's not just Medicare patients, but people who will be Medicare patients. You know, there are only two kinds of people in this country, those who who are dead and those who will be Medicare patients at some point in time. So it's everybody, isn't it? That's correct. And so your Social Security number will be flagged at the federal level. And when you turn 65, if you have any problems with this, you know, the other example that was given was a patient that gets a DVT postoperatively and a pulmonary embolism, and they have to be on Coumadin for the rest of their life. When that person turns 65, Medicare is not going to pay for their routine testing for their INR to monitor their anticoagulation therapy, nor are they going to pay for their Coumadin. 
Yeah, you realize why this system is crumbling, don't you? To have to follow things at that level and to make those kinds of decisions, just the paperwork alone has got to be unbelievable when you're looking at a country this size. Yeah, it's a logistical nightmare to keep tabs on all this stuff. Mike, one of the things that they gave out at the conference was some benchmarking data with regards to where we are and where we're going and where we've been. Why don't you go through some of that? So an actuarial or a couple of actuarials presented aggregated data from 119 health systems representing 1,500 hospitals or 125,000 hospital beds around the United States, approximately a quarter of all the hospital beds in the United States. So it's a really good statistical sampling in terms of the liability exposures for hospitals around the United States. It was interesting that only 40% of claims result in an indemnity payment. So 60% of the claims that are filed ultimately go away with no indemnity payment. In terms of the trends in 2009, remember that this data takes a few years to process all this as the claims come in. But in 2009, there was a 1% increase in the frequency of claims, and that translates to 1.95 claims for every 100 hospital beds in the United States. So if you are a 100-bed hospital, you need to expect that you're going to get 1.95 claims every year. This is an increase over the previous year where it was 1.93, and some of their explanations were the downturn in the economy and also employed physicians, which I thought was more interesting. Normally in medical malpractice actions against hospitals, the physicians are only named about 65% of the time. So in about a third of the cases, the hospital gets named alone. But when hospitals employ physicians, which is a national trend that we're seeing a huge increase in the number of physician employees, they tend to get brought into the action at a much higher rate. There's some old data which indicates that juries as a whole hate two things, insurance companies and big hospital entities. When a physician was sued by himself or herself, they won at trial probably three quarters of the time. When they were sued with the hospital, their success rate fell to one half that. And that may be because the jury looks at this and says, you know what? The hospital's got money. We'll go ahead and fine for something. And when the physician was by himself, he actually did better in a court of law. Right, and that just basically reinforces that concept. Additionally, claim severity has increased. So the payments that are being made have increased by 4%. So in the United States, the average indemnity payment was $215,000, and the associated legal expense with that was $58,000 for claims where there's a payment. In cases where no indemnity payment was made, the average legal expense was 17800 Are these segregated at all by departments, or are these emergency medicine, or are these just across-the-board hospital numbers? So that was aggregated data. Now, I also have some claims data for specific departments. So really the big three risk areas in the hospital these days are OB, emergency department, and surgery. In 2009, there were 44,000 claims adjudicated, resulting in $8.6 billion in losses from these hospitals. So that represents 25% of the hospitals in the United States. So you could multiply that by four and come up probably what the national expenditure was. OBGYN represented 2,836 of these claims, but was $1.4 billion of the money. So not a large percentage of the claims, but the payments are a lot higher. Emergency medicine represented 5,011 claims, costing $985 million. So emergency department and OB make up 27% of all losses that hospitals currently experience. By the types of hospitals, if you put them all together, a hospital can expect to spend for their legal coverage $3,280 per hospital bed. 
So that's the amount that it's going to cost you on average in the United States to run a hospital just for your legal bills related to medical malpractice action. That's per bed. Per bed. So we're looking at if it's a thousand bed hospital, you got a whole lot of money tied up there. You're going to have $3.2 million that it's going to cost you per year just for your med mal related actions. Well, just as an interjection, as I was looking at some recent figures through Gallagher and some of the other groups about emergency medicine in the country, the variation state to state is worse than it's ever been. If you're doing emergency medicine right now in Dade County, Florida, you better be putting aside somewhere $60, $65 a patient. If you're in South Dakota, you're okay by putting aside 3 bucks a patient. And it's that dramatic. It's just unbelievable how it varies region to region, state to state. And this per bed cost varies tremendously from state to state as well. For example, in Florida, a hospital on average will spend $6,390 per bed, whereas in Texas, it's $1,830. And in New Jersey, it's just over $1,000. So it's one-sixth the cost of Florida for New Jersey than it is for Florida. You know, this was pointed out, and Rick is very facile with this information, that not only is the liability cost different in these states, but the actual cost of giving out care of Medicare treatment is three to four times as much in some states as it is in others. It's dramatically different in this country. Yeah, that's a different issue, but they are linked. The cost for care of Medicare patients in Miami is two and a half times what it is in Minneapolis. Yeah, and it's four times the average cost of a patient who lives in South Dakota. And when you kind of put these things together, it makes the case that if we really think that we're going to have some sort of federal health care plan, maybe we ought to do what Canada does and administer at the state level. Because at the state level, there would be states that are winners. As you pointed out, Rick, state of Minnesota would be a winner in this program. They'd have leftover cash. State of Florida would be in deep trouble. And one of the things that he mentioned that I thought was really interesting as a way to beat the whole game was that there are hospital systems looking at opening hospitals on Indian reservations, and then the Indian reservations or the tribe would be responsible for the court system, and they could say, in our laws, we don't allow medical malpractice. You can combine it with casino gambling. That's right. So it's an Indian casino in an Indian hospital. This is wonderful. I mean, this America, how can you beat this country? We need to think about this if there's anything else we can open up. Cut rate cigarettes. I mean, there's a lot of stuff we could do on Indian property. You could have cocktail service in the emergency department waiting room. Yeah. I mean, we could have better services than that. I mean, this is terrific. Thanks for bringing that idea up. I'm not sure how many of our listeners have thought about moving their hospital to an Indian reservation, but God, we got to think about it. But the other thing he pointed out was that not only do you have those issues, but there are other liability issues that hospitals face that we don't see, you know, employee termination lawsuits, uh, slip and falls, labor laws, etc. You know, the unions have no stronghold in the Indian reservations. And at one of our local casinos here in Southern California, all the dealers threatened to go union. And they said, if you don't show up to work tomorrow or you show up with a union sign on, we're going to fire you. And that was the end of it. There's no union there. <laughs> Interesting concept. And I don't know how to ultimately pan out, but we may be come back in Indian land again. Are there any other trends in hospital liability we should be aware of here, Mike? Yes. Well, you know, there's the never 27 events that hospitals are never supposed to let happen, retain foreign bodies, wrong site surgery, etc. Well, a lot of states are now publicly reporting these 
conditions on their websites and it has really become a nightmare for hospitals because if you're cited and fined by a state entity or health department for a patient that develops a pressure sore, has a medication error, or a surgical foreign body, they have to settle those cases. They do not adjudicate them. And the amount that it's costing represents about 25% of all the litigation costs now, or $2.4 billion from these hospitals. And the five that were mentioned were hospital-acquired infections, falls in the hospital, medication errors, retained surgical foreign bodies, and pressure sores. But a hospital-acquired infection is almost by definition, you come into a hospital which maintains the most infectious environment in the community. You'll never get away with having no infections picked up in a hospital. No, I agree with you. And you have people that are sick and immunocompromised, and it's very difficult in these people that have a lot of medical conditions to prevent this from happening. But unfortunately, ventilator-associated pneumonia, I think, is a perfect example where they have a zero tolerance. And if you have a patient that gets it, you could potentially get in trouble. There's also the issue of catheter-related infections. And some of the papers we've done in the abstracts indicate that a lot of these start right out in the emergency department with a substantial portion of patients getting catheters who have no indications for them and no orders for them on the chart, but they're put in for nursing convenience, quote unquote. I've seen some numbers in the neighborhood of 30 to 40 percent of all catheters started in the emergency department are truly not medically justified. They leave the department, go up to the floor, get their UTI, and they've created one of these things that you're not supposed to happen. When we don't see the consequences of it, because we only initiated it, but we didn't see it when it turned into an infection. With respect to full disclosure here, everyone should know who listens to Risk Management Monthly that we do catheterize Rick before the discussion starts because he can't last that long. But having said that, we can go ahead. Mike, what about ER-specific stats on terms of frequency of claims? In the United States, there are 4.1 claims filed for every 100,000 emergency department visits. So if you have a 100,000-volume emergency department, you can expect to see four lawsuits per year. In 2009, the average settled claim was for $186,000, which translates to a cost of $6.70 per ER visit for the hospital. So you need to set that amount of money aside for your litigation costs. Now, that can vary tremendously from state to state. It was interesting that a third of all ER claims only name the hospital. So you lose grandma's false teeth, patient falls out of bed, nursing errors, medication errors, those sorts of things that aren't physician-related. As an insurance guy, let me just say, when you're coming up with insurance rates, when you do the math as you presented it, Mike, remember this that this is how much money you have to set aside for indemnity payment. You also have to set aside a certain amount of money for the grease of the system. And a lot of places would say that's another one-third of the money. So that when you're making insurance rates, it's not just what you have to set aside per patient visit. It's what you have to set aside to manage both the indemnity payment, which is what we give to the plaintiff, and the allocated loss adjustment, which is what it costs to make this machine work. Mike, your numbers didn't specifically include what it would cost for the average visit on the emergency physician side. It would be interesting to know that because we all kind of know what we're paying on a per-patient basis for malpractice insurance, and we'd like to know what the difference is between what we're paying and what the true charges are. He gave a range of 2 to $70 per patient on physician insurance. 2 to 70. 2 to 70. 
Right. And Rick said 65 in Florida. And that's a tremendous difference from state to state. And the other interesting thing was, is that even in a particular state, say like Florida, there's tremendous variation between the urban and rural areas. For example, Dade County and down in the Miami area, you don't want to go to court and you don't want to get sued down there because you're going to get your clock clean. But you can go to the middle of the state in more rural areas and it can be one tenth the cost. Also, in terms of loss rates for comparison, so the emergency department, the $6.70, just to put in perspective, for deliveries, the average birth is $204. Inpatient surgery is $61 per operation. And outpatient surgery is $4.30. Outpatient surgery is flagged as one of the big up-and-coming areas because surgeons are opening their own surgery centers and they're really pushing the envelope for what they try and do as an outpatient and doing much more complicated operations and even keeping patients for up to 24 hours in their own little short stay center right adjacent to the surgery center. Mike, what about new trends in litigation for emergency physicians in particular or departments? So one of the loss leaders continues to be myocardial infarction and The one high-risk group in that area are women between 30 and 50 that smoke. 50% of these people will die within three days of the emergency department visit if they have myocardial ischemia. Problem with women, as we all know, is that they do not present with the dramatic symptoms like a man does when they have a heart attack. They may have some mild chest pain or indigestion. They don't come in sweating and short of breath, and they just don't appear as dramatic. When we have women that are smokers, they come in with chest pain. You need to be very careful with these patients and make sure you work them up properly and do your provocative stress testing or admit them to the hospital. The way to remember this, and this is our cliche at our place, is the smoking cougar is a dangerous animal. <laughs> well, I a- like that. I guess the thing that I've seen so constant over my career, and it hasn't changed a bit, is the concept of muscular skeletal chest pain with no proof in the physical examination that they have anything that's muscular skeletal. It would be nice if the doctor had taken them and moved the arm or pushed against them or felt something. But you know what? It's rare that you look at the chart and you actually see that there's some musculoskeletal source of the pain. Well, there's all kinds of traps that have been identified that are not necessarily unique to women. In fact, there have been some conflicts in the literature regarding is the presentation of MI in women different than men? Some papers say it is, some papers say it isn't, but you really have to have a relatively broad net. But one of the things that I think that we've debated in this series in the past is what is the reasonable workup of a person who has chest pain where you cannot explain the etiology? And I do think, honestly, that the idea of an initial EKG and some observation markers six or eight hours apart is the safest way to handle these cases. And anything short of that, I think, is going to be viewed as very culpable if you screw up. Rick, we have one paper in the database that used exactly that criteria. What they did was they have a couple of early EKGs. They have something about six or eight hours later, two sets of markers. And basically, if you take that group of people, the risk that they're going to walk out the door and drop dead is less than one in a thousand. And if you look at those people who get into trouble, it's the one or two EKGs, one set of enzymes or markers, and then you're on your way. It's rare that I see a case cross my desk where there's been multiple sets of markers and they've actually missed the disease. 
Right. And one of the things that we did at our place to make it easier for us is the time that we seem to have the most resistance from our cardiology colleagues is the middle of the night. Cardiologists are not comfortable admitting people from home. They're used to coming in and seeing patients. And so they'll really pressure you to send them out. So we cut a deal with the cardiologist that when we have people that are low risk for chest pain, that is their EKG is okay and they have an initial set of markers are normal, we put them in our chest pain observation unit without calling the cardiologist. So they get admitted, they have standardized orders to get the serial enzymes. And then the cardiologist, when they come and make rounds in the morning, picks those patients up and then they make the disposition. And so it takes all the headache out of it. And the deal we said is we can either call you and wake you up all night or you can sleep all night and only come in for the real cases, the STEMIs that need to go to the cath lab. And it'll make your life a lot easier. And then you can deal with this during the daytime. And it's worked out really well for us. It sounds very, very reasonable, actually. And it doesn't force you to either admit them or discharge them. And I think there's a lot of people who feel that I need to discharge this patient because the doctor won't admit them. And there is this middle ground that you've described, which is, I think, the safest thing to do. My residency director said, if your cardiologist like you, you're not admitting enough patients. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> I, I think that's probably a truism which we all understand that, you know, it's always amazing how much smarter they are upstairs than we are, that after three or four days of workup, they can come down and rudely say, well, you didn't really need to admit that one. My usual <laughs> comeback to that is, how come you didn't send them home the next morning? Then? That's right. <laughs> and, and they never do. They never send them home the next morning. The only other trend is that the litigation from ruptured abdominal aneurysms is way down, and that has to do with us doing CAT scans on people with abdominal and back pain. It's replaced the IVPs for flank pain, and so missing those has gone way down. Yeah, I think this is a case where the technology for another disease has saved us, and I never think that a stone study is reported correctly until they also comment on the abdominal aorta. I mean, I want to see that comment on any stone study that I get. Any new trends with regards to employed physicians? So employed physicians, unfortunately, you're more likely to brought into litigation if it's a hospital-based case for many reasons. But primarily the thought is, is that the plaintiff's attorney is going to allege that you are an agent of the hospital, you're an employee, and they're responsible for making sure that you do the right thing. And so you're both going to get sucked into that. By the way, uh, you don't have to be an employed physician to be considered by law as an employee. And the term here in Michigan is you represent the ostensible agent or apparent agent of the hospital. And so the cures the claim, and this is a very famous case in Michigan, that someone came to the emergency department, you look like you're the hospital employee, whether you're employed by the hospital or not. So really, this trend has been expanding, and I don't think we're going to get away from it. Well, that's right. The other interesting thing was is that as more physicians are employed, it makes it more difficult to get rid of them from the medical staff if there's problems. And one of the issues that's coming up is invoking the Americans with Disabilities Act when a physician gets into trouble and needs to be dismissed from the medical staff. One of the cases I found extremely amusing and sort of sad at the same time was an ophthalmologist that had severe vision impairment that had a seeing eye dog. And he was told that he could not bring his seen eye dog into the operating room. So he filed an ADA claim, an American Disability Act claim, and the court said, no, you need to accommodate him. And his argument was, is I use this special operating microscope. Once I have that, I can see everything fine. I just need the dog to help me to get to the table and, and get in the right position. So the 
hospital in North Carolina actually made special accommodations and they got his German Shepherd little booties and the whole deal to come into the OR. And then once they started doing this, word got out and the health department actually fined the hospital for allowing a dog in the operating room. You know, you're describing the perfect Saturday Night Live skit. (laughs) Can you see somebody coming in with their seeing eye dog? I don't know how in the hell the patient could go to his office and with a seeing eye dog when he says, well, that's my seeing eye dog. Are you going to sit there and have that guy take out your cataract? Come on. This is a joke, right? No, that's a real case. (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy. You know, you hear this stuff and you just say, you know, where did common sense go? It went out the window there. (laughs) Well, see, it wouldn't interfere with a blinded radiologist because he could still put down clinical correlation required. That's right. Do just fine. It wouldn't be a problem. There are more subtle cases, however. Mike, I think you had mentioned offline something about the aging physician. Yeah, the aging physician is another big risk area. Now you're getting personal, both you guys. Go ahead. Yes, sorry about that. You know, there are many professions that have age limits, and the federal government has sort of chosen 70 as an age that once you hit it, you can put some reasonable restrictions on the workplace. But to give you an idea, air traffic controllers, mandatory retirement at 56. Most firefighters are 55. Commercial pilots are now 65. Priests are 70. Archbishops are given an extra five years, then go to 75. But there's nothing for docs. And with the tougher economic times, and physicians have this bad habit of having multiple wives as well, and divorce and child support, etc., they're working longer in their careers. And you're getting physicians getting into their 70s, and even in some cases in their 80s that are still practicing. And if they're let go based on problems that they have with their care, they'll bring an age discrimination suit against the hospital through the federal courts, and it can be a big problem for hospitals. One we're seeing now, too, is the drug use, saying that alcoholism and drug abuse are medical conditions and that you need to accommodate those problems. And I'll tell you, the hospital is very happy that the physicians are employed by the group frequently because the group then is stuck with those sorts of problems and not the hospital. And the hospital can say to the group, you need to get this physician out of here. And if you don't, we're just going to bring in a new group and really can be a complicated mess for you. Was there anything about the obligation of the group to rehabilitate? This had to do with several cases where the physician admitted that they were having a problem with substance abuse. And then the physician sued saying, you have to pay for my rehabilitation costs even though I'm a subcontractor to the group. Anything of that nature come up, or have you heard about that, Mike? I have not heard about that, about who's responsible for the cost for that. I think that would probably vary from state to state. I don't think there's federal requirements that the employer has to pay for the rehab. Let me tell you about a problem I had this morning. If someone called me about a letter of reference that I wrote about a resident, as a matter of fact, who I had acted as a mentor in their training, but I had not actually observed their care of patients. So I noted that in my letter. They wanted to call and talk to me about what I had seen, and then they wanted to ask a bunch of questions about which I felt uncomfortable asking. What responsibility do we have on these letters of reference that we send out, Mike? So for letters of reference... If someone, like in the scenario you're presenting, twists your arm to get some information, you need to get a release of information and release of liability from that physician that is requesting you to do that letter. And the easiest place to get one of those is your medical staff office. 
I chair the credentials committee currently at our hospital. And so all of our docs that come on staff, we get letters of reference from both hospitals that they've been on previously and independent doctors. And we ask that the physician that's coming on staff to sign these release of liabilities for the person that is sending in the reference as well as us for getting the information. And so if you know somebody that is asking for this letter, if they're a wonderful doctor and they have no problems, you don't need to worry about this. But if they're a bad apple and they're asking you for a letter, you need to be careful about what you put in there because you could be sued for making inflammatory, derogatory comments about them. And if you can get one of these releases, that helps. There was a real big case that happened recently with an anesthesiologist that was having drug problems and the hospital administration knew about it and they went to the anesthesia group and said, it's time to get rid of this guy. So he gets fired from the group and they give him a letter that says you're being fired because of repeated problems with drugs and so on and so forth. He leaves, he goes into rehabilitation, six months later or so applies to a new medical staff. During the credentialing process, they sent out letters to references that he provided to ask them, do they know this person? Does he have any problems, etc.? Some of his former colleagues and partners that had fired him wrote glowing letters of recommendation that he was an okay doctor and no problems, etc. When they knew there was a problem, the hospital itself also knew. And when they filled out the form, they wrote back and said, Due to the large volume of requests that we get, we're unable to answer any further questions. Call us if you need any more information. Make a long story short, working at the second hospital, ends up relapsing on drugs. Patient getting an elective tubal ligation, ends up having a terrible outcome. A medical malpractice action is brought. The anesthesiologist with the drug problem settles for policy limits, so he coughs up a million dollars and then goes back into rehab. The hospital, on the other hand, ends up getting whacked for $8 million dollars. That hospital, in turn, their insurer who had to pay that $8 million sued the former anesthesia group and the former hospital for not disclosing that this guy had problems. And their argument was, if they would have known that he had all these problems, he would have never got on staff, and thus this patient would have never had a bad outcome. The courts, after all adjudicating and said and done, initially came back and said the hospital and the anesthesia group have to pay this $8 million, the first hospital that he worked at. The appellate courts said because the hospital didn't answer anything untruthfully, they just said they were too busy, and the second hospital never followed up on that. They didn't have any liability, so they put the entire $8 million judgment against the anesthesia group plus legal fees which basically destroyed all of their business and careers and personal finances to try and settle that up. So the bottom line is if you know someone has problems, don't write a letter of reference that says that they're okay because that could come back to haunt you. And none of this is going to be covered by any of your insurance that you have, particularly it's not a medical malpractice action, which is the main type of insurance physicians carry. Well, this is the letter that you always worry about, and that's the damning with faint praise when they say, we've known this guy for two years and he's never stolen anything that we know about. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. Or this, you deserve this physician on your medical staff. <laughs> I mean, I have no idea what those phrases mean, and I like your idea of letting them call you on the phone, because then at least it's not in writing, and you can at least carry on some conversation here that says, you know what, there's a problem. Now, there are some cases where physicians have been dinged and sued when they wrote, let's say, more than aggressive letters, negative letters of recommendation. And what I'm seeing now is when a physician is leaving under duress, they actually negotiate in the parting of ways what is going to be said in the reference letter. Right, and attorneys that deal with this area of law are very good at crafting up language of how they want this released. 
And you're right, you wind up writing a letter that said, we know Dr. Jones, and he has a strong pulse, and he combs his hair every day. And that's about yeah. all that they write. Exactly. And, of course, that should be a message to anyone who receives the letter. But obviously, there are some people who still haven't picked up what all of this actually means. Mike, I want to take this opportunity to thank you very much for participating here on Risk Management Monthly. Our listeners love to have visitors. I guess they get tired of hearing Rick and Mel and I, and we're happy to have you here and come back anytime. We enjoy it a lot. And stick around for our letters. Rick, we've got letters this month, don't we? Yeah, we do. But, you know, I wanted to ask one more question there, oh. Chief. We have been tracking this business about mid-levels, and you have said, Greg, that you're seeing more and more cases involving mid-levels. Well, yes, sir. I wanted to ask Mike, as the chair of the Interdisciplinary Practice Committee at his hospital, if they've run into any kind of interesting situations. You know, mid-levels are a way of life as reimbursement decreases for physicians. And we are seeing more and more mid-levels coming into the picture across the hospital, not just in the emergency department. And the kinds of procedures and things they're asking to be credentialed to do is really sort of pushing the envelope to where the sponsoring physician is happy, you know, for a neurosurgeon to have their mid-level put in ventriculostomies and, you know, do some pretty aggressive procedures because they're the ones that are billing for it and collecting all the money. But at the same time, you need to be very careful about what your hospital is allowing your mid-levels to do because these are high-risk patients that are hospitalized, that have serious medical problems. And when your medical staff does not back them up and come and see the patient every day and just let the mid-level take care of the patient on their own, you can have problems and you can have problems in the emergency department with that, and you can have problems in the hospital with that. And we have seen lawsuits come our way from our mid-level providers. Having looked at these things, the professional organizations are going to have to get involved and talk about supervision, and we're talking out of both sides of our mouths here. If you say you get to get paid the full amount and still don't actually give care to the patient. Well, it's actually worse than that, Greg. We were beating our chests about the necessity for board-certified, residency-trained emergency physicians for a long, long time. And now we have brought in mid-levels who are not certified in emergency medicine and don't necessarily have any specific or special training in emergency medicine over their general training is they received as their NP school or their NPA school. And they're seeing patients independently, so they're not being supervised really. I mean, the doctors are reviewing charts at the end of the day, which is largely a sham as well. And we like it that way. And we're moving more and more that way. We did a paper last month that suggested that 70-some percent of hospitals are using mid-levels in their emergency departments, and they're seeing about a quarter of the patients. So I think that we're creating our own dilemma here, because you can't have it both ways. I think that there does need to be some kind of certificational program for PAs and NPs to work in emergency departments. Well, there also needs to be some standard as to what constitutes supervision on certain kinds of cases. And right now, there really isn't. Mike, jump in on this. You're there. The supervision, I think that these patients that have any complexity at all need to be seen by a physician and you need to just eyeball them and take a look at them. I think to let your mid-levels evaluate 80-year-olds with chest pain, you're just asking for trouble with time. And I've worked with PAs that are fabulous, and I've worked with some that are not so fabulous. And I think that the supervision piece of it is very important. It's hard enough for us to get it right, 
with all of our training that we have. And if you have somebody that hasn't done a dedicated residency and studied for the boards and been out there practicing, you're asking for trouble when you start letting them take care of these high acuity patients. It's interesting because there's another point of view that says they can start when we use them and they can see every patient in the department because every patient in the department was also going to be seen by an emergency physician. So if they were the first ones to see a chest pain patient, that was okay, unless there was something crashing, but we saw them all. I'm more concerned to tell you the truth about the quote-unquote minor cases where everybody feels comfortable. Ah, it's only a blank, it's only an earache, it's only a sinusitis, it's only a bronchitis. And Rick, you've hit the nail directly on the head. What is a minor case? The last three mid-level cases I've done are somebody who has a recurrent low back pain. I mean, those are a dime a dozen in the department. Somebody who has a sinusitis, somebody who has a headache, somebody who had a cut finger. I mean, just understand, I'd rather a mid-level see a 45-year-old guy with crushing substernal chest pain and ST segment elevation. They have to be very smart to handle that case. A much tougher one is an 80-year-old woman who says, I'm tired today. See, I think that's the hard case. It's not the arrow in the chest. I mean, that's a simple case as far as I'm concerned. Well, the problem I see it is that we define the simple cases as the bronchitis, otitis, things like that. And we therefore then say, okay, the mid-levels can see these independently. We'll review the charts in about a month, the kind of thing, and we'll sign them. God knows what that means, by the way. And I think that the risk is greater in the subset of patients where you don't see them. Now, there's not going to be a huge number of lawsuits. Most of these people have self-limiting conditions that are going to get better no matter what the heck's wrong with them. But this is the needle in the haystack phenomenon, trying to ferret out which of those quote-unquote minor cases have something really going on with them. And so there's a big philosophical difference in these emergency departments and how they're using these mid-levels. I know a group that has 60 hospital contracts and every soul is seen by a physician even though they've been taken care of by a mid-level and that was our policy. Others, you know the same thing. There's a subset of patients who are viewed to have quote-unquote minor problems who are seen exclusively by mid-levels. Doctor never sees them or they're trusting the mid-level to come to them when they have a problem but sometimes mid-levels don't know what they don't know. And so I think that there is going to be a conflict between ER groups in terms of how mid-levels are ultimately dealt with, especially when Medicare comes down or other insurance companies comes down and saying, you know, we're not paying the full freight here for, you know, right now it's just PAs, but what about nurse practitioners? The underlying theme with all of this is proper supervision. You need to see these patients. You don't have to spend 20 minutes with them, but you need to see the patients that they're seeing because that needle in the haystack thing, when you miss those, they're catastrophic. The state of California has actually taken a position on on on-call panels in Title 22, which is part of our state regulations for hospitals. In there, it says that a call panel shall consist of physician and surgeons. And so in hospitals that have used mid-levels to take call for the internist or the cardiologist, they are being cited by the state and saying, no, your call panel, we only want doctors' names on the call panels. And the first call needs to be a physician. And the on-call doctor has to see that patient before the mid-level does for the admitting. That's a very reasonable regulation, seems to me. Yeah, and I think you're going to see that in other states as you see more and more mid-levels join the ranks of the medical staff. We have a letter or two 
I'd like to take the first one here, and this is from a friend, longstanding friend, Jackie McParlane, who is the program director and emergency medicine residency training at Botsford Hospital in Farmington Hills, Michigan. So a shout out to Jackie. Thanks for writing in. And she raises a question which is not going to go away. She says, we've had a few incidences recently with patients secretly audio recording physicians and staff in efforts to quote unquote, get us. Now, I'm not sure we're looking at Jackie's paranoia here, but get us, I guess, was actually a phrase one of the patients used. She had a personal experience with a patient with a long-standing drug-seeking behavior, and she also had a patient who was very ill, and the mother was tape recording everything at the time it went on. And you realize virtually everyone who comes to the department now carries a device which can make an audio recording, a video recording, and... If they're kept under a blanket or in the pocket, none of us actually know what's going on. So the real question is, what do you guys think of this? What is the liability issue, and how does the law view this? Rick, Mike, what do you think? Well, in our hospital, what we've done is in our general admission consent forms for both elective cases as well as through the emergency department, it specifically says in there that audio and video recording devices are not allowed to be used at the hospital. So we do not allow people to videotape deliveries anymore. And when patients sign those consents, if they do use that and then try and bring an action against you, that really slows them down quite a bit. We have had a physician that was turned in at one of our sister hospitals to the medical board and the patient sent in this audio recording of the physician uh, lecturing the patient about drug use and that they thought they were a drug addict, et cetera, et cetera. And ultimately, the physician was exonerated by the medical board, but it was a giant headache for them to have to defend that. Well, what about some signage in the department? Because nobody reads those the business about consent. There's usually five pages in eight-point type. We have signs up at the hospital that say no audio or video recording. And the guise that we use is that you could get personal healthcare information that could lead to a HIPAA violation for other patients. So they're videotaping you, but someone in the background says, hey, did you hear Mr. Jones has got AIDS on his blood work? And if that gets out, then it becomes a big problem. And so for other patient privacy issues, that's one of the tacks we've taken. I think it's a great idea. I think that you need to defend it in terms of what is the reason. And if you put down what appear to be reasonable reasons, people, I think, are going to be more receptive. There's also this issue about state laws mandating that recordings need to have consent on both sides. And so when you call up India to get your bill straightened out for your telephone, they say, and you hear it all the time, this call may be recorded for quality assurance purposes so that they advise you right off the get-go that that's happening. And I think that there are state laws that require this notification so that without it, you break the law. And maybe that could be added to the list of reasons why you can't be audiotaping or videotaping. Well, I, I took this question to four attorneys, and naturally, if you go to four attorneys, you get four opinions. If I'd paid them, they would have given me eight or ten opinions, depending on what I wanted. But they raised some interesting issues. Number one, hospitals had been encouraging and allowing patients to videotape the birth of children. You know, we've gone through this thing now where the father's involved in everything, including videotaping the birth of his children. This has become standard sort of derriere in these sort of modern delivery centers. And so hospitals are rethinking this issue and have had to 
actually take actions at their executive committee to stop this from being allowed. And by the way, there have been several OB lawsuits filed using those tapes as evidence. Number two, we talked about the issue of recording. Rick is right. Some states have issues, but they are not about having a recorder in your pocket. They're having to do with electronic, for example, on the phone. By the way, the state of Michigan has a very interesting law in that regard, which says one party needs to know. So the other party does not need to know, and no parties need to know if they are seeking a felony warrant. So if the feds get a wiretapping warrant, nobody needs to know about it. But you can still record if one party knows that it's going on. The other thing they said was, what if the patient tells you right to your face, here, I've got my recording device going. So now you do know what's going on. I mean, can you actually stop them from doing it? And one of the attorneys in the discussion raised this question. Would you stop giving emergency therapy if you knew there was a recorder being used? He said you run a risk there of denying care. I mean, is this an MTALA violation? I don't know. I think it depends on if it's the patient or not. If it's the patient's family, you can have security walk them out. A hospital is private property. You do not have to allow the family to be in there, and they can be escorted out if they don't want to comply. Where it becomes a bigger problem is if the patient says, I want to videotape you putting in my Foley catheter, and he's holding the camera or his camera phone himself. Then I think the issue about care is going to come up. I raised this issue. These are four attorneys who have a lot of experience in MedMal. I said, have you ever seen a case where this is involved? And they say, no, we don't know of a case in the emergency department when it's been involved. That's when they brought up this videotaping of the birth of children. But what they pointed out was anything that happens in one small area in law can be expanded. So they were very much in favor of, as you pointed out, Mike, telling people it is not allowed, walking them out, calling security, still continuing with the care. The other thing is, they said, probably reasonable to raise the residents to believe this. There could be a microphone somewhere. So let's be careful about what we say and what we do, just so that it doesn't come back to haunt us. But the bottom line is, we don't have a series of case law yet in emergency medicine, but stay tuned. But I can tell you, I know a risk manager for an ambulance company who's dealing with a case of an esophageal innovation by paramedics where the resuscitation was videotaped by a bystander who ended up giving it to the family, and they're having to deal with the consequences of that. Yeah, it's awful, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it probably has to be some action at the state level which exempts healthcare workers in the emergent situation from having, not that somebody can't record it, you probably can't stop somebody on the street from recording, but it should not be admissible at the time of trial. California went through this with the beating that took place where the police were videotaped. Rodney King, remember the Rod- Rodney King decision? Rodney King, yes. Yes, it had to do with his beating, and that led to a law in California, a seven-day waiting period before you could buy a camcorder. And these things can become pretty ugly. So anyway, thanks for writing, Jackie, and we hope that that's left you as confused as the rest of us are on this issue. All right, at the expense of losing the few friends I have left, I am going to make two more suggestions on Wine of the Month. Now, people whine and people moan and all that kind of stuff about, Greg, you pick stuff that's this and that. I want to point something out. Gallo Vineyards have come up dramatically 
in the last 20 years. I've said for years, we make the best bulk wines in the world, jug wines, and we're now being vindicated. I can only point out to you that they have some 94 out of 100 wines that are now being circulated. And think about Gallo, but I want to go to one that I think has gotten a bad rap over the years and has had some recently great years, and that is Kendall Jackson, another California wine, the 2009 and the 2008 Vintners Reserve Summations. There's one white and one red at the 89 level out of 100 points by these reviewers, and it's 14 bucks a bottle. Now, even Mel who's not with us today, even Mel can handle 14 bucks a bottle. You know, why don't you try these two, see what you think. And when you're going by Gallo, say, just get down on one knee and apologize for all the rude things you said about him over the years. There you go, Rick, Wine of the Month. Thanks, Greg, and thanks, Michael. Very much appreciate your input and your willingness to share the Ashram data with us. We'll talk with everybody next month. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.